Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well today. Uh, show of hands, have you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? Anybody ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? A lot of you have. That's a good thing. Uh, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to deduce that uh, the Cheesecake Factory is famous for their uh, cheesecake. Cheesecake is one of my favorite desserts. I've never had a slice of cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory that I didn't like. Now, you might not know that uh, this beloved restaurant chain has been around for 43 years. There are over 200 locations in the United States. Now, beyond the cheesecake, what I find absolutely fascinating and honestly pretty staggering is the restaurant's menu. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The menu is 21 pages long. It includes over 250 items. Every single one of them is made from scratch. Food prep begins at 6 o'clock every morning, and there are more than 700 ingredients that are needed to make these 250 items. Now, I can't imagine being a chef and having to learn how to make every single one of those menu items. But as customers, it's also kind of a nightmare too, isn't it? Because there's so many options. How, how do you choose? I mean, you, you're looking through, and there may be 20, there may be 30 different things on the menu that sound good, but how do you know which one? And it'd be one thing if it was like it was a particular type of food, but no, they've got Italian, and they've got American, and Asian, and Southern, and, and Cajun, and Mexican. I mean, you name it, on and on and on. It becomes agonizing because there's just so many options. It's like paralysis by analysis, Right? Now, I want to contrast the Cheesecake Factory with uh, In-N-Out, okay? In-N-Out is a popular West Coast fast food uh, hamburger restaurant. Uh, In-N-Out got their start in California, and they've been slowly making their way east. Uh, there are locations in Colorado and Texas now, I know that. But In-N-Out has the simplest menu ever. They have burgers and they have fries, and that's it. That's all they have. Now, you can get a double cheeseburger, a cheeseburger, or a hamburger, but that's it. They don't have chicken, they don't have salad, they don't have hot dogs, just burgers and fries. So when you go to In-N-Out, you're not staring at the menu for 45 minutes trying to figure out what you want. You go in and you, you know. What's interesting is, is both of these restaurants have experienced tremendous success each in their own way. The Cheesecake Factory kind of operates more like a grocery store. Like, if you walk into Walmart, you'll see there are five or six uh, different aisles, or sorry, five or six different kinds of, of peanut butter, right? You, you'll see an entire aisle full of, of different kinds of bread. There's enough jelly options that you could probably mix and match peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for an entire year without, you know, having the same combination. And on one hand, we like the options, Right? We like going to the Cheesecake Factory and knowing no matter who's with you, they're going to find something that they like. With, with dietary restrictions and preferences, it's nice to be able to go into the grocery store and know that, that you're getting exactly what you need or exactly what you want. But you know, I wonder if there are a lot of people around us, maybe some of us included, that we look at God and we see him a little like a grocery store or a cheesecake factory menu. The, the, the functional way that a lot of people approach God today is, is they think that they can pick and choose whatever fits their preferences or whatever fits their felt needs, and they simply leave whatever they don't want on the shelf. 
But that's not the way that Jesus relates with the world. In fact, he strikes a very clear contrast to this view in Luke chapter 13. And as we turn there in our text today, we're going to see that Jesus makes it clear that we only have two options. There's only two options when it comes to the most important decision that we'll ever make in our life. But before we jump in, I'd like to pray together. Father, we thank you for speaking clearly to your people. God, thank you that you have not led us to piece this life together on our own. You haven't left us to, to guess at who you are or what you demand from the world. Father, as we examine Luke 13 together today, would, would you give us hearts ready to receive your word with humility, with repentance, and with joy? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be covering the nine verses that uh, we read together with Michael just a moment ago. I want to give you a quick overview of where we're headed. The first five verses of our passage detail a conversation that Jesus has with a surrounding crowd over two recent tragic events in the area. Jesus interprets these events and provides a very direct point to his hearers. Repent or perish. And then he follows up with a brief parable about a barren fig tree to further illustrate his point. So here's our order today. We're going to look at the two events that Jesus discussed with the crowd and how that interaction sets up the parable. Then we're going to look at the parable to see how it draws out a profound picture of repentance. And then we'll look at the motivations for and the marks of genuine repentance. Luke 13 opens up with the crowd describing a horrific event to Jesus. The blood of Galileans had mingled with the Jewish sacrifices on the altar. Now, note the language that chapter 13 begins with. Verse 1, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Jesus had mixed with their sacrifices. The short phrase there, at that time, links us back to Luke chapter 12. It's a clue that, that Jesus hasn't started an entirely new theme, but rather he's able to use the interjection of this story from the crowd to build further on what he's just been teaching them. Now, we're not going to dig too deeply into Luke 12 today, but one of the threads that runs through that chapter is judgment and the second coming. Luke 12, verses 13 through 21, is the parable of the rich fool. We, we studied that together last week. And that parable serves to highlight the foolishness of stockpiling wealth as your heart's treasure in light of the fleeting nature of this life and the reality of the coming judgment. In Luke 12, verse 35, Jesus begins teaching his disciples about the need to be ready to always be watching, to always be on guard because you do not know the hour when the Son of Man will return. And when he does return, he will require an accounting of your life and what you did with the resources and the time that he gave you. Now, of course, much more could be said about this theme in Luke 12. But even those two sections 
serve as a foundation upon which we can understand why Luke links this opening, the opening verses of chapter 13 back to the teaching that he's just given in Luke chapter 12. So we can see that, that the table, it's already been set. We have the pressing realities of Jesus' second coming and the judgment that we'll either face at the end of our lives or when Christ returns. And so when, when some of the people in the crowd raised the recent event when, when some Galileans were killed close enough to the altars and sacrifices so that their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices, Jesus is ready to respond and ready to further his point. So I want you to consider that, that Jesus first responds with a question in verse 2. He asks, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So by asking this question, Jesus is exposing a faulty assumption underneath many people's thinking, both during the time when these events took place and even in our own day today. See, it was common to assume that, that people who, uh, who died in very tragic ways, people who died in public ways were, were somehow getting what they deserved. P people would say things like, well, you know, they must have been some really bad sinners to go out in the way that they did. And I think that at times we may be guilty of that same line of reasoning as well. Perhaps you're here today, perhaps you're, you're joining us online, and, and, and you haven't suffered much in life. Now, now, sure, we've all encountered challenges. We've all uh, had setbacks in life, but, but maybe your life has been relatively free from significant hardships and terrible suffering. And I wonder if in the corners of your mind and in the quiet places of, of your heart, do you attribute this to your own goodness, to your own righteousness? and that you've done nothing to deserve that kind of suffering. Or maybe you find yourself here today and you're on the other end of the spectrum. You've suffered a lot in life. You've walked through some profound pain and some traumatic events and you find yourself asking, why me? Why? What, what did I do wrong to deserve such suffering? And Jesus' simple answer to this question is no. He continues in verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see, Jesus rejects this small, self-centered thinking that believes that we simply get what we deserve in life. That good people have a good life and bad people earn for themselves suffering and distress. He then reasserts this point with another example from current events. He cites the Tower of Siloam falling down and killing 18 people. And there Jesus, he, he repeats the exact same reasoning in verses 4 and 5. He says, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So rather than buying into the you get what you deserve in life line of thinking, Jesus levels the playing field. Look at the way he presents his argument. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Where is every single person headed? No matter how good or how bad they may seem in this life. 
perishing. Everybody. What is the only way to escape that fate? Repentance. Jesus pointedly deconstructs the flawed, you get what you deserve line of thinking. And so it's against this backdrop that he gives this parable, which we read in the next four verses. The parable is a short story about a fig tree. The tree has been, the tree has been planted, it's been cared for for over three years, but after these years it still hasn't borne any fruit. And so the owner of the vineyard looks at this barren, fruitless fig tree and decides that it's soaked up enough time, it's soaked up enough resources, so it's time to cut it down. But the vineyard worker responds in defense of the fig tree. He asks for one more year to apply fertilizer and further cultivate the tree to see if it will yet bear any fruit. If it does, the tree will remain in the vineyard and produce fruit for years to come. If not, then they'll cut down the tree and remove it. So let's press in a little bit to better understand the parable's main components. And then we'll see how this furthers Jesus' teaching on repentance. The two main elements here are first, the fig tree and the fertilizer. Now, if you're reading from like the ESV translation, it's going to say manure. The, the NIV says fertilizer. Unless you're in elementary school, you probably don't want to hear me say manure 10 to 12 times this morning, so we're just going to stick with fertilizer. Now, second, uh, we have two people. We've got the, the vineyard owner and the vineyard worker. So these elements are plain and straightforward. The fig tree represents God's people. So you could appropriately look at this on both the corporate level and the individual level. The fertilizer that's applied around the tree represents the patience and the grace that God shows sinners. The dialogue between the human characters demonstrates God's character, which is shown here both demonstrating his justice and his mercy. So the narrative of the parable shows us a person who's not bearing fruit. And justice for that person demands that they be cut down. Now, why is that? Look at the question that the owner asked the vineyard worker. Verse 7, why should it, the fig tree, use up the soil? This fig tree has been soaking up water and nutrients from the ground, but for what purpose? If the fig tree doesn't bear fruit, then it's worthless to the owner, and it shouldn't be allowed to continue using up these resources. And this image helps us to understand an element of our own guilt. You see, God is kind to his enemies. God causes the the sun to shine and the rain to fall on both the good and the evil. He sustains the, the innocent among us as well as the most wicked by the word of his power. And if our response to God's kindness is to shun him, to delve deeper into sin and rebellion instead of bearing fruit, then we will be held accountable. Remember that what Jesus demands of the world and the way that we relate to him is not like shopping at Walmart. God operates on his time and on his terms, not our own. Trees either bear good fruit or they don't. And the same is true of you and me. 
And this connects very clearly back to the point that Jesus has made about the Galileans and those who died under, under the Tower of Siloam, doesn't it? He first established the point that we are all going to perish unless we repent. And this parable serves to reinforce those same two options while at the same time underlining our accountability before God. How can this poor little fig tree survive? It must bear fruit. It's been planted, it's been watered, it's been cared for. The expectation is that it will then bear fruit. And this says a great deal to us about repentance. Jesus was very fond about connecting repentance with bearing fruit. He didn't see repentance as merely turning away from our sin. But he also sees grace as turning towards him, his grace, that begins to bear the fruit of the Spirit in our life. That is the fullness of repentance. It's not just turning away from materialism and discontentment, but it's also bearing the fruit of generosity and service towards others, a lot like Zacchaeus did in Luke chapter 19. Not only did did Zacchaeus repent by turning away from his corrupt practices, but then what did he do? He gave half of what he owned, and if he had defrauded anybody, he paid them back four times the amount. Let me give you another example. Repentance isn't that you just stop looking at pornography. You also start doing all of the good works that you were missing out on because of its oppressive weight in your life. You lead your family. You're fully engaged at home. You cultivate friendships and discipleship relationships that you were previously either too ashamed of or too afraid to invest in. The turning away of our sin plus then bearing good fruit is the full measure of repentance. It's what Jesus holds up for us here in Luke chapter 13. And that's our parable, shortened to the point. So we can summarize the main idea of the parable as simply this. Repentance is urgent and God is patient. Now, I want to put a little time together in this morning to make sure that we understand how urgency and patience fit together in our lives. Urgency doesn't normally fit alongside patience, does it? But that's the picture that Jesus paints when it comes to repentance. So with the rest of our time together, we're going to examine both urgency and patience to see how they meet for our good in repentance. So this is our our final point, the motivation for and the marks of true repentance. So let's start with motivation. Let's go back to the fig tree again. The fruitless fig tree was very nearly cut down, ended without ever bearing fruit. But what did the man who took care of the vineyard say? He said, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. What is the vineyard worker asking for? Patience. And what is he providing? Fertilizer. Here we find two primary motivations for repentance. And in saying motivation, I want to be very clear that my goal this morning is very much to draw you toward repentance, to persuade you of the vitality and the joy that's found in bearing fruit 
in keeping with repentance. So the first motivation is God's patience. It's patience. What are we to understand in hearing that God is patient? Listen to Romans verse 325 where we read that in his God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, we hear that the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We know that God's justice is coming. Jesus said, repent or perish. The owner will cut down the fig tree if it doesn't bear fruit. But God also delights to show patience. Scripture tells us that heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents. God does not immediately inflict the consequences of our sins upon us. Think about it. Every single one of us have done enough to be condemned. God would be just if he would have condemned us many, many, many years ago. But we're still here. We're still breathing God's air. We're still drinking God's water. We're still eating God's food. We're still enjoying God's creation, aren't we? We don't deserve it. It's an expression of his patience towards sinners. And without his patience, repentance wouldn't be possible. The sentence could have fallen so many times. But if you're listening this morning, it hasn't. So there is time to repent for now. The one thing we can't do is take God's patience for granted. None of us know how much time we have left. None of us know how long God's patience will last. So don't wait. God's patience towards you is not license for sin. Be drawn in by the urgency of repentance alongside the incredible, long-suffering patience of God. Now for the second motivation, which we see in the fertilizer. What is the purpose of fertilizer? To promote growth. And healthy growth bears good fruit. The vineyard worker didn't simply ask for more time and then stand back to see if the fig tree could bear fruit. No, he, he helped it along the way. He gave what was needed in order for the fruit to grow. And in the same way, Jesus grants grace to his people. The fullness of what Jesus accomplished on the cross includes both the forgiveness of our sins and the provision of every grace that we need in order to walk with him. Now, in the same way that fertilizer for the ground is made up of many different ingredients if you break it down, so too is God's grace varied and sufficient. So let me give you four of the graces that he's provided so that you and I may, may bear fruit in keeping with repentance. First of all, God has given us the church. Th this room is full of people who have come and committed together as Bachelor Creek Church. Within the church, we encourage one another. We, we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And the church was purchased at the price of Jesus' precious blood, both for his possession and for our belonging. 
belonging to and living among your brothers and sisters in the local church is a powerful means of grace on the path of repentance. He's also given to us the Bible. It's in Scripture that we come to the feast that our hearts crave, even when we don't exactly recognize it. The warnings and promises, stories and instruction, correction and encouragement that we find in God's very words to us is like nothing else in all the world. The Holy Spirit loves to work through his word to show us Jesus and to make us like him. The more we read this book and hear this book and meditate on it and memorize this book, we lay ourselves on the paths where the Holy Spirit loves to work and give grace upon grace of all who want to receive them. Third, God has given us prayer. Our Father delights to give us good things when we ask. Our asking is shaped by our life together and by the Bible as our hearts are transformed to be more like Jesus. And he pours out his grace as we pray, rewiring our broken hearts and renewing us as we repent. And number four, he's given us the created world. Creation is communication. God has revealed himself and the things that he has made. And the glory of his creation revelation is such that we've seen enough of God to be accountable for our sins. It's proof enough of his existence, though so many people today, today deny this. However, creation, rightly interpreted, ought to humble us. It ought to aid us on our way to repentance before a God so great, a God so grand that he stretched the galaxies and throughout the sky with merely his spoken word. Church, Jesus is merciful. He's patient with us. He's provided us everything we need for true repentance. So come to him. Our need is great. Our time may be much shorter than we think. Don't receive his patience in vain. Don't squander the opportunity that he gives you. Avail yourself of the life-giving patience and grace of God that is found in repentance today. Finally, very quickly, I want to give you a few marks of genuine repentance. How can we recognize true repentance in our lives? Let me give you just a few. Repentance is specific. We can't simply say we're repenting and following Jesus without turning away from specific sins. Genuine repentance requires that we examine ourselves and with God's help, see where we're walking in specific sins that we can then turn away from, from the grace that he supplies. Repentance includes confession and forgiveness. We don't repent in our own power or apart from other people. We need to confess our sins and seek his forgiveness. And when we've sinned against others, we need to confess to them also and seek their forgiveness as well. Repentance creates in us a hatred towards sin. Romans 12, 9 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. When we repent of sin, we grow to hate it. Its pull and its power over us are broken because we're moving from protecting our sin 
to killing it. Instead of sheltering and enjoying sin, we treat it with hostility. And finally, as we've seen in our parable, repentance bears fruit. The flimsy love and energy we once poured into sin is redirected toward real love for God and for others, yielding the fruit of the Spirit and good works towards others. And this church brings us to the Lord's Supper. Each week, we remind you that the Lord's Supper is for those who have put their trust in Jesus, those who are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Participating in communion is a tangible reminder. It's a a practical teacher. Communion demonstrates to us that repentance is worth it. You know, repentance is often difficult in the moment, but it's the only way to Jesus. And there's not a single thing in the whole world that we should hold on to ahead of Jesus. He died in your place to rescue you from sin, to rescue you from death, to bring us to himself by sustaining us on the narrow road of repentance and faith until that glorious day when we will see him face to face. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to take out the bread. I want you just to hold it in your hand. I want you to remember, I want you to think about the sacrifice that Jesus made so that you could have freedom. His death makes it available. But our response is to repent. To not just turn from the evil that we've done, but as Romans 12, 9 says, to cling to what is good, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I want you to spend a few moments in reflection. And when you feel ready, you can take of the bread and the cup on your own. And after a couple minutes, we'll pray together. Father, you are love, and you expressed your love for sinners like us by sending Jesus to the cross. God, we remember that love. We receive that love. 
God, you tell us in the book of Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads us towards repentance. God, I pray that the love you have poured out on us would cause us to turn from our evil ways and to turn towards you. That our lives would be marked by good fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, may we continue to turn from the sin in our lives, to turn to you. Thank you, God, for your patience. But I pray that you would create a sense of urgency in us to live lives for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.